0: Thank you, ladies. Are any of the rest of you as clueless as I am? And before you jump in and say yes, which we all know is true, I recognize that communication is an art form that I don't always get. You know what I mean? I recognize that though I think I understand what you're saying, very often I get stuck somewhere in the sentence before you get to your point and miss what you were saying altogether. Did that ever happen to you? It happens to me. I think it's probably because I'm just a little ADD. But I think it happens to most of us. It's like the shiniest object in the sentence catches our attention and the rest of the sentence is completed and we've forgotten. Somebody says, hey, you know, I wanted to talk to you about this red fire truck that I saw coming in and we're lost now. We're on the fire truck. We're thinking about the fire truck and we haven't moved on with the rest. It may have nothing to do with the fire truck. You know, this fire truck went by my house, and I just wanted to say the, the alarm, the, the siren reminded me of you know the, the coming of Jesus, and we we don't even hear the coming of Jesus because we're just stuck on the fire truck. Some shiny object in the middle of a sentence got us. You know this, You know when this is really bad, when it's my wife who throws out the shiny object in the middle of the sentence, right? I'm, I'm sure it's bad for her too because I'm sure this is universal human because you're all paying attention right at the moment. I think that that happens to both of us. I think that sometimes I throw out the shiny object and and it's a different shiny object, but it catches her attention and then she forgets the rest of the sentence as well. I know it happens because sometimes I finish my sentence and she looks at me like, what? I can only imagine what I look like when she finishes the sentence and I was still thinking about the fire truck. What? If you've ever found yourself in the midst of some conversation or some event or something going on and you've missed the whole point. The thing went by. You knew it happened. It, it went all the way through and you, you finished and you, you weren't sure you got it. I was, I, I, I've had that experience in sermons. Usually not when I'm preaching. Occasionally when I'm preaching. If I can just admit that to you, my friends. But every once in a while I just miss the point. And I think very often in Scripture we get caught this way. We start reading along in something in the text and something grabs our attention and we miss the point because we got stuck on some shiny object we were reading past and we we can't think anymore. We're reading words but not understanding, not engaging. I, in seminary, regularly had to read pages over several times because I'd get stuck on something and miss everything else I had read and then have to go back and read the whole thing again. The reason I want to bring up our distractions like this is because as we talked about last week, when it comes to especially the prophetic passages of Scripture, we have trouble hanging in until the point gets made. You know what I mean? We get caught on whatever the shiny object that was going by happens to be, and as a result, we miss the main point. And so we've been talking last week, we're talking this week, and we'll continue on for a few weeks now, about some some pretty famous prophetic passages. But I want to remind you that the the point of most of these passages is to build faith. It's not to predict the future. It's not to give you information that you uh, you can merit heaven on. It's not to give you information that you can hold over your friends who don't get it. It is simply to build faith. Last week we talked about that, that structure that's on the wall that's partially built for a reason so that we could kind of understand that faith is being built by these prophetic utterances. And today we're going to go down to this, the companion of this passage. In Daniel chapter 7, we're talking about faith and the final judgment. Final judgment scare anybody? Does the word judgment leave you with kind of a, I don't know, makes me a little nervous. Has anybody ever told you that your name might come up at the judgment in any moment so you better get your act together? Yeah, yeah man, I hate it when people say that because it's just not true. Amen. You know, we've used this idea of a pre-advent judgment to say, man, you're, you could be in trouble because if your name comes up, you're done. To say you have to behave yourself. And I'm not, I'm not anti-pre-advent judgment. I think that's very much what we're going to be talking about. But if you are under the covering of Jesus, your judgment has been settled Amen. by His life, His death, and His resurrection. And so if, we're, if, you're, if you're frightened this morning, let, let, can I just tell you, you can settle that issue before you leave here. You could settle that issue in the next couple of minutes. So faith, in the final judgment. You know, I, I, this picture right here, you know what scares me about this picture? Is it looks like the angel's kind of going, okay, go. You go. I'm waiting here. Go on. Go on. I'm not getting any closer than this. You, you go over there into that extremely bright light over there. Uh, yeah, I know you're a little scared, but go. Your turn. Next. You know, your line came up at the deli counter, number 49. Go. So I want to talk about Daniel's first dream. Remember that in in the book of Daniel, you don't have any of Daniel's prophetic utterances, any of Daniel's discoveries, until you get to chapter 7. We talked about this back in February. If you can remember back that far, that Daniel is having his first prophetic dream. Up to this point, God has been silent with him. God has let him go through all of these things without any prophetic information. So we sometimes think, oh man, it would be great to be a prophet. They got they got God talking to them. Well, yeah, but God was silent with Daniel for about 50 years before he finally starts talking. And then when he finally does start talking to him, this is the first dream, the first prophetic dream that Daniel has in the book. Everything else has re- has a relationship to someone else's original thoughts and dreams. So here it is. We're going to go through this fairly quickly. Because I don't think these shiny objects, the scary parts, are the point. See what we're talking about? So we brought that all back together. Uh, See, see, yeah, you're getting it. Okay, the first beast, Daniel 7, the first was like a lion and it had eagle's wings. I watched until the wings were plucked off and it it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man and a man's heart was given to it. So the first picture is this lion. I think he recognized the lion with eagle's wings to be Babylon because this symbol was all over the place. If you were to go, as I told you in February, and you've probably forgotten, but it's okay, if you were to go to Berlin and go to the museum, you would find that the gates have been reconstructed. The Babylonian gates were stolen, which turns out to be a really good thing because the Assyrian gates that were left behind were just blown up by some crazy... ISIS folks, but the Babylonian gates were taken away, taken back to Berlin and reconstructed. You can see full height reconstructions of the Babylonian gates and these images are all over it. In fact, that's an image from the gate. I think Daniel recognized when he saw a winged lion that he was talking about Babylon. He knew his home base. He knew where he was. He knew everything was, was clear to him from that point. Suddenly another beast, a second like a bear, it was raised up on one side, had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And they said thus to it, Arise and devour much flesh. And the third beast, after this I looked and there was another like a leopard which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads and dominion was given to it. Now, have you ever noticed we don't put hummingbird wings on this thing? It doesn't say how big the wings were. It just says four wings of a bird. Well, I just big like eagle wings. It's dimensional, I guess. It just strikes me. I better just move on. <laughs> the fourth beast. After this, I saw in the night vision, and behold, the fourth beast, dreadful and terrible and exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth, it had ten horns. And then I was considering the horns. And there was another horn, a little one coming up. And there in this horn were eyes like a man, the eyes of a man. And a mouth speaking pompous words. The picture he's seeing was in alignment with the picture he'd seen in chapter 2. The head, Babylon. Chest and arms, Medo Persia. The belly and thighs, Greece. The legs, of iron. The horns would be similar to the toes, the feet of iron and clay there was an alignment between these two he's going to be told about this in just a minute but i'm just letting you have the story ahead of time remember we talked about a chiasm chiasm we've talked about it a few times in church a chiasm is a way of organizing thought you organize thought by saying introduction point one sub point a sub point b uh, point two sub point a sub point b point three conclusion, right? That's the way you organize thought. In the Western world, that's the way we go about organizing thought. This is the way they went about organizing thought then. So it was simply a structure that was built like this pyramid, like this ziggurat. Daniel 2 is in alignment with Daniel 7. Daniel 3 with Daniel 6. Daniel 4 with Daniel 5. And it builds this pyramid up to its point up there in the middle. Which if you were to read this carefully, you'd find out this is the conversion of Nebuchadnezzar, which is in the middle of Daniel. So what's the story of Daniel about? What's his main point? The conversion of this king who had captured Israel and hauled them off. This king who had them under his thumb. That's the central point of the story of of Daniel. And you missed it completely, didn't you? Because we kept looking at all the funny-looking beasts and the shiny objects around. We missed his main point. But if you look at the structural organization of the story, its main point is there in the conversion of the king of Babylon. Isn't that interesting? So the interpretation, Daniel was concerned. Verse 15 to 18 or where the interpretation starts. Verse 15, I, Daniel, was grieved. You see, I've skipped a bit because I'm going to come back to that, but we, we all want to know what the shiny objects mean, so let's go with them first. I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit, within my body, and the vision of my head troubled me. I came near to, the one, to one of those who stood by and asked him the truth of all this. So he told me, and made known to me the interpretation of these things. Are you ready? This is the point. Are you ready to get the point? Are you sure? Because yeah. have you ever noticed the point before? Did you ever notice before that, that, that the, the angel actually is told? So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. I asked him, what do these things mean? He said, this is what it means. Ready? Here it is. Those great beasts which are four are four kings which arise out of the earth. Okay. Pretty easy. We, we kind of saw that lining up with chapter 2. There's four kings and four kingdoms. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. What is the point of Daniel chapter 7? Is, the e, the is it the beasts and the images? Uh-uh. The point of Daniel chapter 7 is right there. The saints will receive the kingdom forever what was the point of daniel chapter 2 we're all we love all the statue and all of its stuff the point of daniel chapter 2 is this kingdom cut out without hands it strikes the image at the bottom grinds it into dust rises up and fulfills the earth and becomes the kingdom that lasts forever and ever daniel 2 daniel 2 gives you the kingdom daniel 7 answers whose kingdom it is it's the kingdom that belongs to the saints and their savior forever and ever even forever and ever The point of Daniel chapter 2 is not the shiny objects. The point of Daniel chapter 7 is not the great scary beasts. The point of both is the coming kingdom of God. And if you've missed that, you've missed the point. You heard the sentence, you got lost somewhere when there was a fire truck that went by, and you didn't hear another word all the way through. Now, lest you be disappointed... Let's take a little quick look at some of these things. He's not, he's, Daniel's not done. He's worried about this weird little horn. Then I wish to know the truth about the fourth beast. Now, I'm skipping a bunch of, uh, of stuff. That's what the three little dots mean, because he gives all this description. And then he goes, namely, so I, I'm thinking that's what his real question is. Then I wish to know the truth about the fourth beast. Namely, that horn which had the eyes and the mouth which spoke pompous words. Again, commentary about that. I was watching and the same horn was making war against what? The saints and doing what? Prevailing against them until the Ancient of Days came. Why is he bothered by this little horn power? Why is he bothered by this, this mouthy little horn sticking up on the head of this animal? Because it's, it's prevailing against the people, against the saints, all the way until the Ancient of Days comes. It's prevailing all the way until the coming of Jesus. Do you see it? He's worried because this little horn is going to have power to prevail, to overcome the people of God all the way to the end of time. Would that worry you? It worried him. So did he miss the point? I don't know. He wrote it down. Right? He wrote it down, so he must not have missed it entirely. But he's still worried about this point. That there will be one who prevails over the people of God until Jesus comes and rescues them. That's his worry. And as we talked about a long time ago, back in February, this, this, this and the rest of Daniel's visions leave him stressed and worried and troubled the whole time. Thus he said, The fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom of the earth, which shall be different from all the other kingdoms. That fourth beast, alignment again. Babylon was the first one, clearly. The, the, that lion with, the, with eagle's wings. Babylon, Medo-Persia was the bear, those three, three uh, ribs in its mouth were three major battles that it took Medo-Persia to gather the kingdom, to gather the empire out of the hands of Babylon. The, uh, the, the, the uh, leopard that rises up with the four wings is Greece, and that division of it into four heads are the four kings who would follow after Alexander the Great. It's pretty simple, pretty easy to follow it historically, now that we're looking backwards. Probably a little confusing when you were looking forward, but looking backwards is pretty clear, pretty simple. The next one that comes along, this fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which shall be different from all the other kingdoms, shall devour the whole earth and trample it and break it into pieces. Okay? This fourth beast begins to describe the power and domination of the Roman Empire. See, most of the other empires before this time left a certain amount of of a free movement within the, within the populations. People in these far-flung places kind of ruled themselves. As long as they kept sending their taxes, things were okay. They were actually encouraged to maintain their own worship styles. They were encouraged to maintain their own, their own governments and things of that nature as long as they kept their taxes flowing and kept under a certain level of the administrative leadership of the centralized government. However, when Rome came to authority and to power, the Romans came with a much stronger hand, a much, a much more uh, uh, powerful uh, expectation of what people should do. They came to tell people to obey and to do exactly what they wanted. They enforced not only political rule, they also enforced religious rule and persecuted people who didn't fall into line under the religious rule. So when you start realizing Christianity is being persecuted, Judaism is being persecuted in Rome, it's because Rome is a different kind of nation at this point. When Rome rises up, they are much more uh, intense about their leadership and about you doing what what you tell them to do. Rome would then be divided into ten horns. The ten horns are ten kings who shall rise from this kingdom. We talked about the ten toes. We talked about the division of Rome. It's an interesting thing. Facts of history: Rome doesn't fall to another empire. Rome just gets eaten up by a bunch of barbarians. I like this picture. It's like uh, it's like rats on a ship. They're slowly eating the cargo, and that's what happens with Rome. Slowly, Rome starts getting taken away, and bits and pieces of Rome start getting chunked off by mostly German barbarians. I used to love to tell my European civilization classes that they were most of them were German. I would ask my kids at the beginning of school, "Okay, raise your hand." How many of you are French? They would raise their hands proudly we we're French. How many of you are, are Austrian? They raise their hands proudly we're Austrian. And they would, I would go through all the, sort of the European nations in there. And then I would tell them all, you're all Germans. I'm a German. You're all Germans. And they would just start getting spitting mad with me. You know, nothing worse than telling a teenager they don't know what they're talking about. No, 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 no. And they would, I would get all this noise from them. And I'd say, wait. Most all of the peoples you just described came in as Germanic peoples off the Euro Plain and took over chunks of Rome. So you're all Germans like me. Oh, they hated that conversation. You Anglo-Saxons, by the way? German. Just saying. What What I want you to see in that silly illustration is that these were the the parting up of the Roman, Roman Empire. They just started taking chunks of it. And they divided it up like those toes on the statue. They divided it up into small chunks. And that was the ten horns who shall rise from this kingdom. Another shall arise after them. So these first these divisions will happen and then another will arise after them. He shall be different from the first ones and shall subdue three kings on his arrival From Constantine's conversion in 312 A.D. at the Battle of Melvian Bridge to Justinian's declaration in 538, a new sheriff arrives in town. And he will dominate the history of Europe for the next 1,200 plus years. Three kingdoms that are taken out by by this new authority, the Vandals, The Heruli and the Ostrogoths, they're Aryans. Note the spelling. They did not have shaved heads and swastika tattoos. These Aryans did not believe that Jesus, this is a type of theology, did not believe that Jesus was in fact God. Okay, and so they believed Jesus was maybe a God or a creation of God or a very important prophet or something like that, but they would not accept that he was God. The Vandals, the Heruli, and the Ostrogoths would eventually each fight wars with Rome as a proxy for the bishop of Rome. And finally, the Ostrogoths would be, would be defeated about 538. Justinian would then declare the bishop of Rome rule over all Christianity. This is a theological decision, not a political one. The politics followed in the train of the theology. But they wanted to unite the church without any more of these crazy Arians out there who were telling all these tales about Jesus not being God. And so they wanted to eliminate that theology. And so they did it by finally defeating these who, by the way, each one attacks uh, the, uh, the city of Rome and the bishop of Rome at some point. And so they, are, they, they destroyed them. Justinian declares the bishop to be in power, and this 538 date will become a very important uh, date for us in a future time. The picture thus far is making it clear that God knows the future. Do you see that? He knew that there were others after Babylon. He knew that there was going to be Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, Then Rome would be divided up into smaller parts and that from within that group of smaller parts would arise a power, this bishop of Rome, who would dominate the region. And if you know anything about the, the history of the Middle Ages, you know that the church dominates politics within that region for the next 1,200 years or so. And so that's going on, and he, God knew all of that was coming. So the first portion of this just is a, a strong establishment that God knows what He's talking about. If you're a, if you're a a, a a person who has a, a a trouble believing in the validity of Scripture, go to these prophetic passages and recognize that in them is a statement about the authority of Scripture in them is a declaration that God actually knows what He's talking about. And that you can take these, these understandings, these explanations, and that you can broaden your, your recognition of the authority of Scripture from there. Do you see that? So in the beginning here, we're building faith in the historic sections for the prophecy that's yet to come. John 13:19. Jesus, in telling his disciples about his demise and about Judas God being the one, he actually doesn't name him, but one of them would actually be the, the one who would turn him over to the, uh, the authorities. He says, I tell you these things so that when it comes to pass, you will know that I am the Messiah. What's he saying? He said, I'm telling you ahead of time what's coming so that once it happens, your faith will be placed in me. You follow so far? Not new information for many of you. So then, uh, the rest of the story. The other piece that we haven't yet talked about. Remember, he's seeing this thing happen, and he's seeing this pompous little horn making all this noise and attacking and and and, and overwhelming the people of God until Jesus shows up. But then he sees Jesus show up. He sees God throw up, show up first. I watched till the thrones were put in place and the Ancient of Days was seated. So here comes animal and animal and animal and this weird little horn and, and all of the craziness that he's doing. And then he sees God. And God shows up. And when he sees God, he sees Him high and lifted up. He sees the flames rolling out from under his uh, from under his altar, from his throne. He sees wheels on this throne like Ezekiel had seen. Wheels that are a firing, firing flame. He sees a stream of fire flowing out of his throne. He sees God and God is a Just amazing. When he sees God, it's spectacular. You want to stop for a moment and say, hey, what was God emphasizing in this story? Here you go. This is as spectacular as Mount Sinai. When he shows up, he's he's the Ancient of Days and everything's aflame under him. Then he sees that the court is seated and the books are open. Now I want to stop you right here because this is where folks get nervous. The books get opened. Uh Uh-oh. We've read in the Bible... It says that every word that I have spoken is recorded, right? It says the deeds of the the people are recorded, right? That there's a recording angel. And what does he do? He writes stuff down. Right this moment he's writing. And John was on his iPad during the church service (laughs) playing games. Right? Isn't that what he's writing? He's writing down our words and our deeds. The Bible says that he's writing down everything that's going on. It's freaking us out because we don't even want our family to know all the things that are going on. He knows our actions, our deeds, and our thoughts. We can keep our actions, sometimes our deeds, and even our mouth under control. But your brain runs off on its own all the time, right? It starts doing stuff you never wanted it to do. And there's this angel writing that stuff down. There's a record. And the books were opened. I don't want those books open, do you? The books were open. I watched (coughs) in the night vision, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven. Do you realize that Daniel saw Jesus coming? Daniel saw the second coming in this story. We've been so busy looking at lions and leopards and bears. We don't even recognize it. In the middle of this story, Daniel got to see the second coming of Jesus. How cool is that? To me, that's the highlight of the story. The Ancient of Days and the Second Coming. Who, wants, who cares about lions and bears and stuff? The angel, the Ancient of Days and the Second Coming are in this story. Right there in the middle of the story. Yeah, we got this this blustery little horn, and he's mouthing off for a long, long time, and he's causing lots of problems for a long, long time. But then God shows up and the second coming appears. This is a cool story. But this is the cool part right here. We got caught up with all the stuff that didn't really matter, all the stuff that was pointing to this. All the stuff that said, God, knows God knows what he's doing, God knows what he's doing, God knows what he's doing, God knows what he's doing. And by the way, he's coming. You can be excited about letter number C because you watched A and B happen. You know A and B are true, so now you get to look at C and go, I can't wait. How cool is this? Daniel got to see the arrival of God and the second coming of Jesus coming in the clouds of heaven. And he comes to the Ancient of Days. And he's brought up to the Ancient of Days. And to him is given dominion and glory and the kingdom stop. Have you read those first few chapters of Revelation after you finish the seven churches? Have you read that worship event that's going on in Revelation? That whole story there? That picture of what happens when Jesus shows up and He comes into the presence of God and He's there in the throne with God and He's given the kingdom and dominion and this great and glorious worship service takes place that all peoples and nations and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and His kingdom is one which shall not be destroyed. And by the way, there are a thousand times ten thousand gathered around the throne ministering to Him and ten thousand times ten thousand hanging out just as they're standing there. In the presence of God, as Jesus shows up. See, here's the cool central theme, central point of the story. What did, what did the angel tell Daniel was the point? Ah, yeah, there are four kingdoms coming. Yeah, and the ten kingdoms after that. Yeah, mouthy little horn, but God's not worried about any of that. He's coming himself. And he's going to handle all of this. And his kingdom will be established. And the saints will be given the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. Daniel wants to know what's this all about. He said it's about the fact that you guys are going to win. I know this is all scary to you. You're a Babylonian captive. You've been hauled off to a foreign country. You've been been put under the thumb of a king. But I'm telling you, I got this. It's in my hands. None of what happens on the earth goes past my understanding. I know the end when I'm standing at the beginning. I know the empires who will come and how scary they might be to you. But I'm telling you, don't worry about it. Trust in me. I'm coming to rescue you. You get this? This is the point. This is the deal. The Ancient of Days came and a judgment was made in favor of the saints of the Most High. The books were opened. And you know what they found in the books? They looked at the books and they said, Ah, those who've trusted in Jesus win. Amen. They looked at the books and they said, Look at all these people who trusted in Jesus. We don't have any record of all the dumb stuff they did. All we have is their names lifted in the Lamb's Book of Life. Praise God for that. We just erased John's looking at his tablet because he trusted in Jesus. Right? The Lamb's Book of Life is the book that really matters. They open the Book of, of Life and they find your name recorded there and you are given victory because judgment is had in favor of the saints of the Most High. You get in this part. Do you have faith in this part? Because the rest of this is to build your faith for this. The rest of the story is to build your faith for this. Unfortunately, most of us feel like this when we talk about judgment. Unfortunately, when we look at the judgment, we're like this little tiny guy down there. And God! And we're really scared about the whole thing. We're like, I don't want to deal with all that. I don't want to stand before God. You know, I don't. It's it's a horrible thing. It's a terrifying thing to stand in the presence of an angry God. Guess what? Not angry. Not angry. Yet there we are. When the judgment comes up. We keep worrying that somebody's going to tell Jesus about what happened when we were in college. We're worried that somebody's going to tell him that we've never had a pure motive in our whole life. Somebody's going to slip that in, you know. We're going to be standing before the judgment and he's going to look at the book of life and he goes, great, your name's here. And somebody's going to whisper in his ear, but did, did you hear what happened to that guy? Did you know what happened? This is how it works. When we have fallen and are broken, and we recognize our weakness and we understand that we need Jesus, that we cannot lift ourselves up, that we cannot stand in front of a holy God. We're in the perfect place. At that moment, we are finally ready to be lifted, to be carried by our savior and presents it to the father not because of what we have done but because of what he has done our rags his riches our covering not our own his but we've read we've read in Romans we've read in Corinthians We must stand before the judgment seat of God. We must stand before the judgment seat of Christ. We've read it. It's right there in the text. It says every one of us will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Is there any example of Scripture where that shows us what that looks like? I have one. There was no question what this woman had done. There were witnesses. And when she's dragged in front of Jesus, he doesn't attack her. He doesn't do what the law proclaimed should be done to her. In fact, he draws every bit of attention to himself. Have you ever noticed how when it gets quiet, you see what is causing the quiet? And Jesus kneels down quietly and begins to write and draws the attention away from this poor, shamed girl. And as he writes, her accusers go away. I love this story because he doesn't out them either. He doesn't embarrass them either. He very well could have. And it is certainly within my heart to have done that. He doesn't out them. He just writes. And they walk off. And when when they're all gone, when the youngest one finally has a good sense to leave, he says to her, where are your accusers? She looks in his eyes and says, I don't guess I have any. He says, okay then, go. Don't sin anymore. Don't, Don't do the things that are causing this mess you find yourself in. It was so cool to David. David, the man after God's own heart. David, the attacker of Bathsheba. The killer of Uriah. David, that David. It was so cool to him that he would say, let the heavens rejoice and let the earth be glad. Let the sea roar in all its fullness. Let the fields be joyful and all that is in it. Then all the trees of the woods will rejoice before the Lord, for He is coming, for He is coming to judge the earth. He shall judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with His truth. Dave is real excited about the judgment. He says, let the heavens rejoice. Let the earth be glad. God's coming and He's settling all of this stuff. What does David know? He knows the heart of God. I'll leave you with this. In the Greek world, there is something known as a bema. It's a platform. And it's a platform that you would have a debate on. Each person in the debate would be lifted up in the in the main courtyard of the of the community and the debate would go back and forth. It was a platform that a proclamation would be made from. If you were arriving in town, as Paul often did with new information to be proclaimed, you would stand up on the platform, this bema, and you would proclaim the information. But Paul, who seems to have been a sports fan, when he uses this term, is hearkening back to an older one. That the bema was set up in the courts... Where the games were going to be played. And standing on the BEMA was the official, the umpire, the judge. And he would watch the game go. If it was a run, he'd watch them run. If it was a race or anything else, he would watch to make sure that the rules were kept and that things were done fairly. And then, as Paul says, those who compete in the games strive for perfection so that they might win. So run your race to win because you will stand before the Bema. You see, what happened at the Bema was that the official would simply declare the winner and he would place a wreath on his head so that everybody would know who won. You see, the judgment seat of Christ is that judgment seat. That place where the people of God are gathered. And judgment is found in favor of the saints. Because the books have been opened and their names have been written in the Lamb's book of life. And he stands before his children and he declares, You are my children. Come home. There's nothing to fear in this judgment day. This is the day that David looked forward to because it would be the day when God would declare you Let's pray. Father God, there are so many places where we have failed to, to follow. We failed to recognize.